Hi, I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. Welcome to episode 22 of the Harvey Weinstein Trial Unfiltered, a daily podcast using reenactments of the most dramatic moments of verbatim testimony from the trial of Harvey Weinstein. And this is the final episode of the series. This is the sentencing. Weinstein has already been found guilty of sexual assault charges. Not the worst offences he was charged with, but still serious offences. So let's just first remind you what the trial was about. It's a case that basically launched the Me Too movement. Movie producer Harvey Weinstein faced two charges of rape and one of a criminal sex act concerning two separate women. He also faced two charges of predatory sexual assault, the most serious charge of all, which actually carried a possible life sentence. He was acquitted of this most serious charge. However, he was convicted of the lesser charges that he faced, a first-degree criminal sex act for forcing oral sex on production's assistant Miriam Haley. He was also convicted of the third-degree rape of Jessica Mann. The difference between the two charges are the degree of compulsion and force used. Third degree means non-consensual. First degree means force was used in the attack. Um, and first to speak directly to the court was Jonah Lucy Orban, the assistant district attorney who has had a very successful trial. She had accusers whose stories had weaknesses, but she was able to convince the jury that their accounts were true. She threw everything she had at Weinstein and a lot of it stuck. She did not lay off him in her address to Judge James Burke regarding sentencing. Let's hear right now yeah, what I, I she sp- had to say. I suppose we should say that the courtroom was packed. Harvey Weinstein came in in handcuffs, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first time he's come into court in And the defence quickly asked if they could have the handcuffs removed, which, which and they were. And they were. He was subdued. And let's hear what Jonah Lutzi Orban had to say about what she thought he should face going forward. After my remarks... Two women who, because of the verdict here, get to stand up and in their own minds, hearts, and words, finally get to directly speak to you and hopefully affect the decision of this court on how best to deal with their pain and suffering inflicted by the defendant. Ms. Haley and Ms. Mann will address the court and the defendant. Here also with our profound gratitude and in support of Ms. Haley and Ms. Mann are Annabella Shiora, Lauren Young, Don Dunning and Tarale Wolf. Simply put, without these women and others who were willing to come forward, be 100% transparent, sacrifice their privacy, and at times their very well being, this matter would have never been able to be taken. It would have never been successful, and the defendant would have never been stopped for hurting and destroying more lives. Each of these ladies represents the strength and fortitude of every moral person who stands up and says, enough, this has to end, and I have to be the one, and then to do something about it. In sentencing a criminal defendant, the court customarily considers various aspects of that individual's background. How has this person lived their life? Does the crime he's committed represent aberrational behavior? What are the chances this person will reoffend? Who is the defendant, and what has he made of his life? Before making a sentencing recommendation, we filed with the court a list of vetted, reliable accounts of suffering by individuals at the hands of this defendant, actions on the part of this defendant that speak to his lack of human empathy, selfishness, and a life rooted with criminality criminality that has gone unchecked for decades. Harvey Weinstein is a person who appeared to have it all. 
He had obtained wealth, prestige, and power in an occupation that most people looking from the outside in appear to be one filled with fun and enjoyment. People in this world love going to the movies. Why is that? It is because life can be difficult, and even at the best of times, far from perfect. People go to the movies to momentarily escape or just be entertained. We look at the enjoyment and adventures by the folks who get to create or perform in the movies, and it becomes a dream for many people to be part of that world. The defendant had that dream come true. He made movies. He got to go to all the parties and often host them. He walked the red carpet and mingled with the stars. He enjoyed the wealth. He had the resources, and he held the dreams of many people at his hand. How did he use that power? He got drunk on the power. He saw no authority over him, no limit to what he could take, no desire he could not grant himself. The young, struggling dreamers were not even people to him. He could take what he wanted, knowing there was very little anyone could do about it. He held all the cards and played them at will. In a statement he penned himself, he refers to himself as a sex addict, an anger addict, and goes on to say he wanted the best of everything. He was addicted to the conquest. What is sexual assault? It is an act of violent assault on someone else's body which by design demoralizes them, is violent and humiliating to each and every one of them. The defendant committed these acts with complete abandon and void of an ounce of human empathy. There is no single comparison of violence when it comes to criminal acts that one human being can impose upon another short of death. It cuts through your soul, yet the defendant did it without hesitation, without thought. He would destroy and move on to his next target. Certainly, although it is not the same, the defendant also demoralized, harassed, and assaulted the men who worked for him or who had to deal with him professionally by the threat of violence and acts imposed to humiliate and diminish them. You saw here a few of the survivors of his wrath. But there were many more people who to this day are afraid to be public regarding what he did to them. Not only did he abuse people, but he instilled fear, sabotaging people's livelihoods and relationships. The world was there for his taking. Our written submission, Your Honor, details a number of acts of sexual harassment and violence against women the defendant perpetrated, but there are more. And because some women could not come forward, we have to appreciate that and respect that was their decision. The defendant also executed NDAs with many people he assaulted. An example was an employee who was assaulted while working for the defendant. She suffered for many years in silence because of the NDA she signed and believed it was so restricted she feared even opening up to her family and friends about what happened to her. She recently went public with that. During the course of our investigation, Judge, we interviewed many people. To give you some perspective of some people at some point who had worked with the defendant, some people were assaulted in some way by the defendant, and what we have done is called out a small few letter quotes of what people said in asking to describe, in responding for our request to describe the defendant. 
These are people who have known him for years, worked with him, or was subject to him. Quote, he is a devil. Quote, liar. Quote, very bad temper. Quote, pattern of threatening to destroy employees' careers if he didn't get what he wanted. Quote, bragged that he could kill people. These are all different people, Judge. Quote, frightening power addict. Quote, demanding, agitated. Quote, unrelenting. Quote, never seen such a foul mood, so consistently extremely temperamental. Quote, he gets off asserting power, predatory behavior. If he senses someone is hesitant, he pounces. Quote, overwhelmingly ruined my life and my career. Quote, he has zero compassion, empathy, civility. Quote, his temper was always very bad. He would single out and scream at people. Temper got worse and worse as he became more famous. Quote, he was abusive, mentally and temperamentally, and demanding rude and threatening. Quote, brutal and vicious. Quote, working with him was a nightmare. Quote, he hurt a lot of reputations. My story is as unpleasant as anyone else's. Quote, frightening being around him, afraid of his fury and wrath. Quote, he is a rapist. Quote, unpredictable behavior, never knew what would set him off, a screaming bully. Quote, being verbally assaulted was a regular occurrence. He told me he would kill me and my entire family. This is a young assistant, by the way. Quote, anger was explosive. He threw staplers and other things. Quote, he was a manipulator. Quote, always behaved strangely erratic, always snapping at people, seemed sociopathic. Got a lot of joy by demeaning people. He is a monster. So strong stuff there. And uh, somewhat less convincingly, Miss Lucy Orban also says his behavior with hotel employees and their instructions on how to treat him are also indicative of him being an abuser. She also alleges that Weinstein even lied in his letter to the judge appealing for mercy. So let's hear that. It was not only the people he worked with and worked around, Judge. You can see from the instructions on his hotel instructions as a guest, his client profile, which says that co-chairman of Harvey Weinstein Company, Max Poster is an alias for Harvey Weinstein. When a vehicle approaches the front, do not go near the car of Mr. Weinstein at any time. Do not speak at him. Do not look at him. Stay away. This is the life this man has led. In sum, judge, the defendant has been using and abusing people his entire life. He, through his lawyers, have issued a letter asking you to consider his other good deeds and in taking into account some mitigating circumstances of asking for leniency on his sentence. But even in that, he lies. And can you imagine what he lies about, Judge? He claims that he had to leave college to support his family after his father died. He left college in 1973. His father died in 1976. Who lies about something like that? He says he donated a million dollars of his personal funds to the hole-in-one gang. Not true. He never donated a single personal cent of his own money to that corporation. At this time, Judge, we are going to hear from Ms. Haley and Ms. Mann, but the people urge this court for the reasons that we have stated and for all the reasons that you have heard during the trial and that we have informed you from the survivors of this crime that you sentence this defendant to the maximum or near the maximum. 
So nothing left on the table there, a full frontal attack from the prosecutor. As was later pointed out, she was throwing in non-criminal behaviour in the workplace with the criminal sexual behaviour. I mean, one thing that struck me, Phelan, was the fact that, you know, we know, for example, the famous story that Tom Cruise has a thing about being on set that you're never meant to look at him in the eye and yes. stuff like that. So bringing in stuff like that, I thought it was sort of strange. Also, bringing in the abuse to employees is strange. I mean, it's not a crime to be bad-tempered rude or and scream, scream at people. people. Yeah, yes. exactly. However, I suppose Miss Lucy Orban was using these examples to show that it was not a case of someone leading a blameless life. Who suddenly, in a moment of madness, becomes a yeah, monster. Yeah, exactly. So then, then we heard the victim impact testimony from Miriam Haley. She alleged that Harvey Weinstein orally raped her in his Soho apartment in 2006. And the jury found him guilty on that charge, but there were weaknesses in her case. Why did she take a flight to LA, paid for him the day after, and why, when she returned to New York, did she meet him and have consensual sex with him, and then ask for a trip to London, and while there, write to him saying she just found out that he was coming to London and tried to change her flight. As a lot of you who've been listening consistently to the podcast will remember all of this. But today was not the occasion for questioning or for relitigating the case. So let's hear what Miriam Haley had to say to the court and to Harvey Weinstein. Your Honour, I'm here to talk about how it has affected me to have been sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, to have been raped by Harvey Weinstein. I say raped because that is how I experienced it at the time. That is what I experienced was happening when he would physical force violate my trust, my body, and my basic right to reject his sexual advances. In the spring of 2006, I was at a very low and vulnerable point in my life. I felt drained and insecure, having recently almost lost my great friend, mentor, and employer to severe illness. He was like family to me, and to almost lose him was devastating. His business collapsed and... As a result, I lost my job and income, and with that, I ended up losing my apartment. I also lost the foundation, support, and encouragement that I had to pursue projects and ideas under that company. Everything had come crashing down that year, and I knew I had to start from scratch, make new professional connections, and create new opportunities— so when Harvey Weinstein agreed to meet me that one afternoon at the Cannes Film Festival to talk about potential job opportunities, I felt elated and hopeful. I presumed he wanted to help me because he respected the person who had introduced us, who I had been working for. I presumed he wanted to help me because he empathized with my situation. Instead... I was met with suggestions that we give each other massages. I was met with comments about my appearance and attitude that made me feel he didn't for a second think I was of any professional value at all. I left that meeting in tears, feeling humiliated and deflated. Nevertheless, Harvey Weinstein arranged for a small work opportunity. Not a real official job like I had originally hoped, nothing major, but it was something. And at that particular point in my life, it was better than nothing, so I was grateful. Sometime later, I expressed that gratitude to him by email. And what followed was a brief period where Harvey Weinstein treated me with surprising respect and normality. Until July 10, 2006, when he asked me to stop by his Soho apartment. I had no reason not to go there. 
Harvey Weinstein was not a stranger. He knew people I knew. I had no reason to think that even if he made sexual advances towards me and I rejected him, that he wouldn't respect my rejection. I had no reason to believe he would force an act of sexual violence on me, but that is exactly what he did. I believe when he attacked me that evening with physical force, with no regard for anything I said, no regard for my profession, physical resistance, panic and fear, it scarred me deeply, mentally and emotionally, perhaps irreparably, perhaps forever. What he did not only stripped me of my dignity as a human being and woman, but crushed my confidence and faith in my professional future. It diminished any confidence and faith in people and myself. I was confused, in distress, and in disbelief. It was embarrassing and tragically very hurtful that this person... Incredibly hurtful, I should say, that this person, who I knew to some degree, but who had also known for a long time somebody I trusted and loved, would do this to me. Since I felt trapped and not being able to go to officials or out him publicly because of reasons I shared in my testimony, I eventually buried it, minimized it, put on a brave face, and carried on as usual because that was my coping mechanism. And to be honest, I didn't want to feel like a victim nor be perceived as one. I preferred that people thought this powerful guy the industry was fond of, respected and liked me. However, in reality, these incidents with Harvey Weinstein altered the course of my life significantly. I no longer felt the same positive confidence in my professional work, or the same optimism about a future in TV and film. I tried for a while, as the court was shown, to pursue some ideas, but he had crushed a part of my spirit and he had made me feel, well, awkward and insecure. At the time all this happened, I thought I was alone in this. I had no idea there were others. I didn't realize the extent of Harvey Weinstein's manipulative and calculated predatory behavior. I have since heard descriptions of encounters with Harvey Weinstein that are so strongly similar to mine, they blow my mind. The pattern is obvious. I have no doubt that if Harvey Weinstein had not been convicted for sexual assault and rape by this jury, it would have happened again and again and again. So I'm relieved to know that he's not out there feeling even more empowered, entitled, and assured that he can do whatever he wants to do to whoever he wants to do it to. I'm relieved he will now know he's not above the law. I'm relieved that there are women out there safer because he's not out there. I dream to become a witness in this criminal prosecution of Harvey Weinstein because simply it was the right thing to do and my civic duty had further impact on me. It affected some aspects of my life. On the one hand, it forced me to process what happened on a level I had not previously. It forced me to resolve and settle within myself feelings of self-blame and shame that I was still holding on to. 
I could not have walked into this courtroom for my testimony and cross-examination still carrying all of that. Sorry. But mostly, the past couple of years have been excruciatingly stressful. So in that way, it has been healing. I have lived in fear, paranoia, on a daily basis. In fear of retaliation, paranoid my every move was being tracked and monitored, having learned of the methods Harvey Weinstein has used to intimidate and silence people. Having had a friend tell me his private investigator showed up at their door asking questions about me. I had panic attacks and nightmares. I feared for my life. And because of the public nature of all of this, I put myself in such a vulnerable position to be criticized, scrutinized, judged and targeted by misinformed strangers. I have worried I might lose work because potentially employers might be put off by discovery of this information since it was readily available on the Internet. I avoided dating. I don't want to drag anyone into it, embarrass them or be hurt if they distance themselves from me once they found out. The list honestly could go on. The ways in which my life has suffered, been disrupted, infiltrated, and inconvenienced as a result of Harvey Weinstein's actions. I've never felt vengeful, and going into this, initially, I didn't feel anger. I just felt sad. Sad for myself. Sad for everyone he hurt. And I even felt sad for him, for having done this to himself. But I have observed an indifference, a lack of remorse, lack of acknowledgement, a lack of awareness and self-awareness by the defendant throughout this process that has made me feel anger, that has left me concerned. He's completely disconnected from the gravity of the crime that he has committed against me and the impact that it had had. I can only hope that whatever sentence the court sees fit is long enough for Harvey Weinstein to acknowledge what he has done to me and others, and to be truly sorry. So a heartfelt plea there from Miriam Haley for a stiff sentence. It was thought, and that was the consensus around the courtroom, that the judge would deploy a stiff sentence, regardless of the victim impact statements. But these testimonies from Haley and then from Jessica Mann, no doubt will help make up his mind. So then we heard from Jessica Mann, jury found uh, Harvey Weinstein guilty of third degree rape of man in a Manhattan hotel in 2013. Let's hear her now. We now present Miss Jessica Mann. Your Honor, the day my uncontrollable screams were heard from the witness room was the day my full voice came back into my power. Those were the screams that wanted to come out while Harvey was raping me. Those were the screams of a terrified young woman reliving experiences of horrific violence against her body. Those were the screams that will forever haunt those who witness me. That, Your Honor, is what the victim, the behavior of a rape victim looks like when facing their powerfully rich and famous rapist in court as his lawyers twist the truth and even lie. I swore to come here and tell the whole truth, only to be limited by yes and no questions, premises framed by the defense that were grossly misrepresented. 
there is still so much left unsaid about his abuse and manipulation, as well as my own coping mechanisms, which is what I would call victim behavior. I wasn't asked to testify about the aftermath of the wreckage Harvey caused in my life. I was only questioned for having to continue to mitigate the damage that was already done. I ask you to consider a few things that are backed by real science and the studies of trauma referenced in the Harvard Journal of Psychiatry that are very deeply rooted in my case when making a decision about the severity of the rape for which Harvey Weinstein is proven guilty of. Tonic or collapsed mobility is one of six defense mechanisms the body elicits under trauma and stress. Stress like rape. So many women, myself included, have only been able to find words such as I gave up or I lost control. And like myself, I froze. The majority of the public has not understood that these responses were not something we consciously chose and dress. In fact, voices like myself have repetitively stressed the confusion this response caused for not having a bodily response that fought back. By believing we should have resisted more, we are prone to greater PTSD symptoms and depression, as well as guilt and shame. Because the truth about physiological defense mechanisms is something lawyers like the defense don't want entered into evidence so they can continue to capitalize on the broken. And predators like Harvey don't want the public to be educated on so that he can exploit the victim's shame to escape condemnation. This rape-induced paralysis is a natural response designed to activate under situations such as sexual abuse or rape. When the brain assesses that flight or fight are not possible, the immobility response is activated. Harvey at that time had every advantage over me, even the immense physical stature of Harvey's weight, height, and ox-like strength. He used that physicality to trap me and prevent me from leaving. That, Your Honor, was a powerful assessment that flight was not possible. Fight was also not possible. His strength overpowered me trying to leave. His strength hurt my hands when he forced them on myself to start undressing. He had already physically hurt me in the past when I was unable to escape his grip at prior occasions. Rape paralysis or immobility is very real in humans. A good visual of this is when animals play dead under stress. While they remain flexible and aware, they are trapped in a survival response until the threat is removed. In people, this response can also be accompanied with fainting or blackout, such as what happened to me in a separate rape committed against me by Harvey Weinstein. Just like our hearts beat without our conscious awareness, it is critical that victims and the courts understand that the ability to fight during rape can be out of the victim's control when this defense response is triggered unconsciously. I ask you to consider the horrors of being rendered immobile by my own biological response while I had to hinder his penis raping me on his time as slow as he wanted while he pleasured himself inside my body. I wish I had been able to fight him when he raped me. I should have walked away with a sense of control over my body instead of deeper shame. So please understand. To show distress, especially while still in shock, would have been dangerous. 
I was not about to advertise that I was a weak and wounded prey and attract more potential violence. This is a response we see in nature, and it should have no response that hiding weakness is something every human being on this planet exercises. Perhaps now it is easier to understand why showing distress after rape is a fantasy in relationship to power dynamics. How after my body was completely dominated by him, my spirit and my emotions were the last thing I had left to control in my experience of existence as a human being under his influence. I want to remind you, I told Harvey no. Forgive me for assuming that in private, after being threatened not to embarrass him, I thought I would be able to force my no and assert my right to autonomy. However, Harvey did not see me as somebody who had equal rights. Harvey knew through my verbal statements I did not want to invest being in that room, much less did anything sexual in any nature with him, which is why he used intimidation, commands, and force in a way so manipulative it would be hard to convict. Harvey didn't need to use a physical weapon that makes me live in fear of an invisible gun to my head, ready to be pulled if he felt in the mood. Invisible weapons are known as abuse of power. They are still life-threatening aspects a victim has to endure. Harvey abused his power over the powerless to exploit a system. My life was especially impacted by this kind of invisible weapon when in 2015 I effectively distanced myself from him for quite a while. Freedom from Harvey became a truly hopeless endeavor as I watched Ambra Badalana be smeared, shamed, and attacked before the world. Amber's case solidified to me, which I always had known as a possibility, of how he could destroy my reputation before the whole world and how that world would not care. I also assessed Harvey's position of power, authority, wealth, and fame in society. I repeatedly witnessed him threaten individuals and in getting what he wanted. This included high-profile people with threats of him blacklisting because he had done it before and the hotel staff livelihood if they did not open the kitchen for him after closing. And most disturbing to me, threatened my father with an old-school mafia bat beatdown. My father, who was dying of cancer at that time. If you have any sympathy for that man you see before you, consider Mr. Weinstein took joy in beating to a pulp a dying man, a man poorer than him, a man who is an extension of me. Whether that was a fantasy of his, he executed it or not, he offered it with a story to back up when he had done it once before. Escape from the dynamic from him would have come at great personal injury. Even he was a man who was increasingly escalating to violence, degradation, and severity in raping me. The unknown effects of giving him the ultimate rejection through escape was terrifying. If A-listers and hotel managers bowed to this man's command without question, how does one find courage under such force without no consequence? I ask you this. What is left after rape when a person already increasingly violent rapes you multiple times? It is documented publicly that Harvey had several NDAs hiding his past sexual assaults. His only spanking was to 
take a slap on the wrist and pay a fine each and every time. My rape was preventable. This was a known offender whose crimes were covered up and documented in a paper trail. You see, the commodity the Weinstein companies produced was very valuable commodity to the world. Society pays to be entertained, and the value to escape life to be lost in the magnitude of the incredible films this man produced was too valuable a commodity to be stopped by the woman he trapped, raped, and assaulted. Many individuals may not understand why I hoped that attempting human connection with a man who was sexually abusing me, humiliating me, using me, and pumping me into his world where he always controlled the script was a long, exhausting form of survival called traumatic bonding. The impact of rape is profound. I live in a body that has become unsafe. It is impossible to translate the magnitude of such an experience to those who have never been violated internally. I am forced to carry that experience until I die. It impacts me in activities, social interactions, intimacy, both sexual and emotional, and is a recurring nightmare that I feel is just as real as when it happened. There are good days... And there are bad days, and I hide it as best I can. The defense attempted to create their own diagnoses of my mental health, which they are in no way qualified to do. They took my medical records. I disclosed when I had a breakdown after the headlines broke about the serial predatory behavior of Harvey Weinstein. What the defense didn't want the jury to know is as a recipient of Harvey Weinstein's violence— being admitted to the emergency is a powerful evidence of victim behavior because I realize Mr. Weinstein's crime is against humanity, not just crimes against me. The effects of my health are invisible, but that doesn't mean they are any less real. I can list for you all the effects that would take far too long, and I'm not going to give any more power over to the man who already stole my body. Twelve people found Harvey unanimously guilty of raping me. That is not an easy task. It is preposterous to say that twelve people were pressured by society to come to this conclusion. Anyone who believes that to be the case has never had to live with making a decision to completely alter another human being's life. In a way that may feel like a type of death sentence, twelve people took away Harvey's freedom in the end years of his life as a crumbling senior citizen who literally is decomposing before their very eyes. No matter what someone has done, Harvey is still a human being, and no doubt the jury felt that. Harvey still denies his wrongdoing towards me, Mimi, Annabella, and the other woman who testified, as well as the plethora of other voices unable to be heard in the court of law. A man who had so many previous NDAs hiding his past sexual assaults. He's baffled at finally being held accountable. A man who assumed with his money and presidential alliances, it would make him untouchable. 
The man I know Harvey to be is hell-bent on control and obsessed with his legacy. I imagine he is still coming to terms with losing control of the legacy he scripted. However, I hope that the accountability of a maximum sentence, he finds the ability to leave behind a legacy to help create a better world for his family. Behind bars, Harvey can be given a chance to rehabilitate while being held accountable to his crimes and perhaps even help write the playbook of how predators operate so that these dynamics are forever exposed. Your Honor, I hope I have justly explained the horrors of immobility while being raped, which allows a predator to have an easier time raping. I hope I have explained the horrors of being raped by someone who has power. And hopefully you understand it takes a very special kind of evil to distort human connection and use it to leverage each rape. If someone who knows you is willing to rape you, the impact on the psyche is profound. I ask that you contemplate that rape is not just one moment of penetration. It is forever. Whether that rape exposes a victim to a lifelong disease, a pregnancy, injury, mental disorders, the impact will last a lifetime. It baffles me that a man can go to jail for a minimum of 5 to 20 years for drugs charges. Yet in my case of rape, the maximum sentence is 4 years. How do we so devalue a human being's right to autonomy and the right to live in their body without violence? How am I not worth more than cocaine? The answer is, I am worth more. Third degree and first degree rape, having experienced both at the hands of Harvey Weinstein, have forever equally altered my life. I hope that today's sentencing, I do not have to take any further detriment to the quality of my life for Harvey's behavior. I ask to be given the gift of knowing exactly where Harvey is at all times, so that I can truly live. And I ask that the public be given that gift as well. Do not devalue my life so much as to ask me to share the time he deserves to serve for my body and my life at the same time as the victim Mimi. Her and I are two separate individuals that he exploited at separate times. This is a crime against individual human beings. Do not continue the course of history where women's lives matter less by grouping us into some cattle call the way, same way Harvey herded his victims as disposable. I promise you, if you value my life, I will spend every day getting better. I will take back my life. I will take a hold of my future with more energy than you can imagine. I will reclaim my time. I will regenerate my health. I will absolutely make you proud to see me go from the girl on the stand who talked about her shame and feeling like a lost cause to becoming a woman who has found happiness. 
who can live in joy, who is free, and who will go on to live a life so incredible. No human being will ever fear that they are beyond redemption or harnessed to the shame of their past. I want to set an example of our true potential as humans when it comes to our capabilities and our innate worthiness, no matter what the gender is of someone who assaulted or raped. It is time that people who rape other humans pay with their life for the life they took. Today, I have no shame. I stand with gratitude and wholeness in my being and stand here ready and willing and want to help others have the same wholeness and freedom I now experience. I have found my voice, and together we can have a future vision where monsters no longer hide in our closets. Your Honor, you have the ability to make that new world possible by sending a resounding message of new precedence and accountability by valuing our individual lives. I ask that you choose the new future over leniency and partake in the world, me and this incredible team we are here to build. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Aluzzi, anything further? No, Your Honor. For people hearing this speech from Jessica Mann for the first time, it comes across as very impressive, heartfelt, powerful, emotional, you know, even a bit political at the end. She mentions the Harvard Journal of Psychiatry even and kind of talks about a little bit of psychoanalyzing of herself, um, which I liked less than her personal thoughts. But overall for us, the people who were in the court every day for this trial, it was hard. I find it very hard to forget that Jessica Mann had written all those emails, had called, you know, their relationship a booty call, called him her casual boyfriend, wrote to many emails for years and years saying love you and lots of love and miss you big guy and looking for tickets and all that. It was hard to, you know, even in this context of listening to her very impressively today, it was hard for me to forget all of that extraordinary evidence. And, but, and I think it was hard to reconcile the Jessica Mann from those emails with the Jessica Mann today. And I think we'll see later on Harvey Weinstein found it hard to reconcile those two Jessica Manns as well. So then we go to the defence. First of all, there was a very tetchy exchange between Arthur Idala. As it appeared, the judge was reluctant to let him and two other Weinstein lawyers speak. So first, lawyer Arthur Idala pointed out how offenders similar to Harvey Weinstein had been treated by the New York judiciary in the past and indeed by Judge Burke himself in the recent past. So let's have a listen to that. So the mean number for everyone whether convicted after trial or pled guilty, is eight and a half years. Now, the court knows that, or should know, that that statistic includes individuals that the court sentences who are mandatory, persistent felons. Discretionary felons. Persistent felons. Those are people that have one felony conviction before the one they are being sentenced on. Two before the one they are being sentenced on. Three or four. So people who have very significant and severe criminal records in New York State, on this count, the mean sentence is eight and a half years. And the statistics don't show. And we asked, and Judge Kamins tried to find out from the Department of Corrections. They don't have those statistics. Are they only being sentenced on that top count? Or are there other counts below it? They don't have this statistic. What we did find out... The statistics include crimes, the same crime that Mr. Weinstein pled to, that includes crimes that weapons were used, 
Crimes where serious physical injury were posed to the victim. Where physical injuries was posed to the victim, threats of physical injury was posed to the victims. Strangers in dark alley type situations. None of those exist in this particular case. There are no issues anywhere about weapons or injury or serious physical injury. And just to show this court that this court actually agrees with that statistic of eight and a half years for people who have been on that end, and, of course, Your Honor, it is lower for people who are first-time offenders. This court, in August of 2019, excuse me, August of 2018, while Mr. Weinstein's case was actually pending in Manhattan, the DA's office handled a case, People versus Yogatashi, with a Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, who is in the courtroom today and has been in the courtroom ever since this case started. This defendant abused workplace power dynamics to prey on junior colleagues in an appalling act of sexual assault. That's a case that Your Honor handled. This district attorney's office, where according to Molly Crane Newman of the Daily News, who was here, the complainant and the victim cried, as we saw here in the victim impact statement. And in a case where an executive with no criminal history lured his employee into his hotel room, asked her to bring orange juice. When she wasn't looking, he put a strong sedative in the orange juice so she was knocked unconscious and he raped her. In that case, this court allowed the district attorney's office to enter an agreement with the defense to allow him to plead guilty to not one count, but three counts, including rape in the first degree, a much more heinous crime than is alleged here, and sex abuse as well, and facilitating a sex offense with a controlled substance, a B felony and a D felony. Here, Your Honor, has a B felony and an E felony, so they're less serious charges. In this case, no one has ever said Mr. Weinstein has used drugs or alcohol or anything else to, the way Mr. Yokotashi did, to prey on the victims. So you have a case that Your Honor handled 18, 19 months ago where you agreed to sentence the defendant to seven and a half years. And that was a man who's 20 years younger, does not have a laundry list of medical issues, did not have a nine-year-old and a six-year child, who he is very close with, has not done the innumerably verifying acts of raising hundreds of millions of dollars for needy people from 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy to the Robin Hood Foundation. It does not include the guy who has the most Academy Awards and is thanked from everyone from Meryl Streep to Martin Scorsese and everyone else for enhancing their careers. And Your Honor found it acceptable to sentence Mr. Yogatashi to less, to less than the state average. And in this courthouse, within the last two years, sentenced by one of your colleagues, both when you were off the bench and on the bench, People v. Smith, a case where a young man meets a stranger gets him inebriated on tequila to a point where that young man is passed out, a stranger, and that stranger wakes up and finds the defendant Smith performing oral sex on him. He punches him in the face, jumps up, and calls 911. The police come. That young man, Mr. Smith, goes to trial. He's found guilty of performing a very similar act here, Your Honor. And that judge, your colleague again, with a defendant who doesn't have the history of doing great things for many, many people, sentenced him to the minimum. He said, you lived a law-abiding life. You deserve the minimum. Because five years upstate, New York, is a miserable, horrible existence for that particular young man who had never been in trouble before. 
And I'm sure when your honor sentenced Mr. Yogatashi, he felt the same way. So the only thing that I told the team from Chicago is that they would not lose any credibility. Mr. Sharonis and Ms. Rotano, I have the highest respect for. And their credibility means a lot to me, as it does to them, that they would lose no credibility with this court if they asked for a five-year sentence. Because if someone with Mr. Weinstein's background, with no criminal history, and 70 years old, who is a broken-down man, who the federal courts have said before a court, they are sentencing someone which is basically a life prison term. The court better think that through thoroughly, because that is the most severe punishment. It is basically the death penalty. I told Damon and I told Donna, you will lose no credibility with this court if you say Mr. Weinstein deserves the minimum. Because based on the statistics, based on the data, and based on Judge Burke's prior sentence in a very similar case, where the actions were worse, where the crimes were higher, he accepted a plea that this DA's office recommended, and he accepted to less than the mean of eight and a half years to seven and a half years. So with that being said, thank you very much, Your Honor Burke, for allowing me to be heard. With that, I would like to defer to my colleague... There then followed another highly charged exchange between the Weinstein lawyers and the judge, and uh, it really reflected the deteriorating relationship between the two parties. The defence felt that the judge was against them, was against Weinstein from the start, and this continued through jury selection and on rulings throughout the trial. There was a lot of tense exchanges. I remember even when the jury was out, there was a very tense exchange about opening a window and... Donna Rotano said, Judge, give us something. Yeah, give us something. Yeah, you know, exactly. In other words, you've given us no rulings, no help during the whole trial. At least allow us to open the window. Uh, and, so, and so today, nothing had changed in yes. terms of that tetchy relationship. Let's hear that tetchy relationship be exposed in court. Judge, are you going to let Mr. Sharonis speak, or do I have to do his part as well? You're going to speak? I was going to start, and he was going to finish. Knock yourselves out. So, knock yourself out. Not quite the exchange of judicial wisdom from throughout the ages, you know, being exchanged in this New York courtroom. I thought it was really unfortunate that he spoke like that. I, I, particularly when you think of the context here where they're talking about powerful men and powerful men abusing their, their power. And I thought, actually, he was pretty much abusing his power by being... I mean, if a colleague said that to you, you know, in a workspace and spoke to you with that kind of aggression, I think I think you might be hauled over for it. Yes. I mean, these people are doing their job, Donna Rotono, etc. They're doing their job and to be spoken to like that. I, yeah. I, just, I thought it was very disrespectful and it actually went to the point that they're making about bias. Yes, and also he was the most flippant person there today. You know, whatever you think of Weinstein and whatever you think of the lawyers and whatever you think of the accusers, they all tried their best and all took the process very seriously and the only person who was being flippant was the judge. So then we moved on to Damon Sharonis, who asked the court to ignore much of what was in the prosecution's sentencing memo and the quotations that Miss Aluzzi Orban had given to the court. Sharonis pointed out that many of the acts alleged by the prosecution were not criminal and those that were criminal were not decided upon by a jury, yeah, any jury. It's a very good point. You know, why are you bringing in this kind of information at this late date, stuff that the jury had never got to hear? It seemed really odd to be bringing that stuff in. Yeah, so in other words, he said Weinstein should only be sentenced for charges he was convicted for and not for other unproven allegations. Interestingly, the judge told Sharonis that he had, quote, read the letter again and again. And to quote him again, he said, 
I have to say the great majority of it I saw through the same prism that you have just expressed. In other words, the judge, the judge agreed with them. However, I think this was contradicted by remarks the judge made during the actual sentencing. Then it was time for Donna Rotona to speak on behalf of Weinstein to appeal for mercy and to try to get as low a sentence as possible. Let's hear what she had to say. Judge, in regard to my overall, I would also like to start by thanking this court for trying the case on behalf of Mr. Weinstein. Although we loved being in New York, we are very happy to go back home and try cases where we come from. But it has been a pleasure to be here. Judge, however, Mr. Weinstein entered this courtroom and was ready and prepared for the fight of his life. And that's exactly what this was. This has not been an easy circumstance for anyone involved. Mr. Weinstein came in as a person that the government painted as someone that has it all. And I think when we think about what it means to have it all, we have this idea that fame and fortune and money and being able to have the world at your fingertips is positive. But I think in many ways, Judge, we have to think about the fact that in the pursuit of that life and in having that life and having every single thing you do and every move you make will be scrutinized and written about and dominated by media, as we can hear by the clicking of the typewriters behind us or the keyboards behind us. It shows that there is a pressure that goes along with that lifestyle that is probably not something that we would think is something everybody would want or attain. When you walk into a criminal courtroom and as a criminal defendant, you walk in as somebody who is expecting to have a fair forum, a fair trial, and let the evidence speak for itself and let a case be evaluated on the evidence and the evidence alone. That was never a possibility for Mr. Weinstein. So when we look at what we may want as a life, what we would want as a life is being able to come in and have the ability to be in a room, let the evidence speak for itself, and not have every force outside of what happens in this room have an impact. And that is what happened. And whether people want to admit it or talk about it or say that it is true, how can we deny the fact that what happened before we walked in here had an impact on this? Whether it's positive or negative is for someone else to decide. But Mr. Weinstein came in with the forces of the media, the forces of the world pushing against the chance for him to ever have a real impartial jury in this case. Not one person who walked in the door said, I didn't know about Mr. Weinstein. I hadn't heard about Mr. Weinstein. That is quite unusual. And any case that we have in any criminal justice system throughout this country, it is unusual to be put in a circumstance where people make a prejudgment based on what they read and based on what they hear. And ironically, one of the most common questions the defense team gets asked is whether or not he was faking his illness or his injuries. And you know, Although that seems very trivial in this forum that we're in now, given the gravity of what he's facing, what that shows us is what the general public, potential jurors, people who make decisions or thoughts on Mr. Weinstein, they're focusing on things that don't really have a real place in what happens here. And they make judgments about him without knowing the real facts. We have supported and sent to this court a letter highlighting Mr. Weinstein's medical issues, his illnesses, the things that he's facing, even the new things that have arisen since he's been in custody. 
Judge, Mr. Weinstein is a sick man. Mr. Weinstein has a multitude of medical issues. There are a list of things that are physically wrong with him and things that are serious. One of the latest diagnoses, as the court sees in a letter, is something that has to be monitored and something that can be deadly. Mr. Weinstein has a history of heart disease in his family. He will be 68 years old later this month, and this is a situation where the loss of freedom that he will suffer not only will it affect his general overall health, but it will affect his ability to get the type of medical care that he's going to need for the list of issues that he is dealing with. We have also made requests to the court about specific facilities that we're asking the court to consider making a recommendation to. I understand that the court doesn't have the ability to order the Department of Corrections to send Mr. Weinstein anywhere specifically, but we are aware of the fact that a recommendation from the court would very potentially play a role, and we're asking that the court at least consider making that recommendation, and what Department of Corrections does with it is up to them. In terms of Mr. Weinstein, he was a 68-year-old man who grew up in New York. He grew up with parents who lived modest lifestyles, and he did what he could as a young person to help the family, and he worked from a very young age. Judge, he was always somebody that wanted to work and create. He started with helping create the company that we all now know as Live Nation. From there, he went on to work with music groups and bands, and then went on to the film industry. Mr. Weinstein never took lightly the role that was given to him as time moved on and he became more well-known in the movie industry. His parents taught him that you should give back, that you should pass it on, and that's what he did. When we look at the allegation in this courtroom, we see one very small side of who Mr. Weinstein really is. And we hear about the horrible comments that the people want to make and the comments that Ms. Aluzzi uses from others. But what we don't see is the other side of everybody from the things that he's done. And you can go online and you can YouTube every celebrity that you can think of thanking Mr. Weinstein at every award show. I think statistically, he's tied with God in the number of times people thanked him when people received awards because he built careers. And because he built careers, he was known as someone who did that. Everyone wanted a piece of him. That is not an easy position for someone to be in. And Mr. Weinstein himself will tell you that in that pursuit of power and in that need, the people had to know him and be a part of his circle, and it became a very stressful existence. Mr. Weinstein tried to never be anything, at least to his team, other than kind and respectful, and continues to be that way and has been that way with us the entire time. He has been grateful for our work. He has been grateful for the opportunity to be able to have this case heard. In terms of his family life, Mr. Weinstein has three grown daughters with his first wife. This circumstance has greatly affected his ability to have a relationship with them. At this time, it has fractured that relationship, and that has been one of the most difficult parts of this whole experience for him. He has two younger children, six and nine, with Georgina Chapman. He has a wonderful relationship with them. And until his incarceration has spent time with them on a daily basis as he has been preparing for trial. The loss of his daily presence in their lives is going to have a major impact. They are used to having their dad around. They're used to seeing him. And even upon the divorce from their mother, they lived extremely close and they were able to see him at any time. Judge, 
This incarceration not only has an impact on Mr. Weinstein's well-being, but it has an impact on all of those who love and care about him. I think what speaks most to the coverage that this case has received is the number of people who have wanted to reach out on Mr. Weinstein's behalf but are afraid to do so because of the scrutiny they'd receive by coming forward. Even the witnesses that we had to have come to trial by subpoena to tell their truth and their version of the story as they saw it, they had to be subpoenaed to come here. And one of those girls reached out to me the other day to say, since testifying here, she has lost her roles as a voiceover actress and has not had any roles since she testified here when she used to work on a regular basis. Her agent, although did not drop her, he removed her photo from their website. And Judge For people to suffer those ramifications because of the media scrutiny that this case has taken on is flat out wrong. It is wrong for people who want to speak on behalf of Mr. Weinstein, but don't feel that they can do so because their pictures are in the paper. They lose jobs and they can't go on in their lives. It is wrong that the people whose careers he helped make feel like they can't come forward when they want to. And I think that we have to question not only as the court, but as a society, if that's the way these things should happen. People should have a right to come in and express their experiences in regards to what they know to be true about Mr. Weinstein. The directors, the actors, the writers who have had careers and continue to have careers because of Mr. Weinstein is endless. He has over 80 plus Oscars that he is responsible for. That is not a small feat. And I know that success in business is one small aspect of our lives. And I think that he will be the first to tell you that in order to be successful, there was much that he gave up. I think that if he had a chance to do some of those things over again, he would have spent more time with his children, especially the older ones. I think he learned a lot as he got older that the important things in life are really the things that start at home. No matter what happens here today, Judge, no one wins. I know that puts the court in an uncomfortable position, but that's the fact. No one wins. And Mr. Weinstein, in looking at his health and his illnesses and his age, I think no matter what this court does, we're really looking at a de facto life sentence. And judge, frankly, even if the court gives the minimum five years that we think is a more than adequate sentence, given the totality of the circumstances here, it is very possible that Mr. Weinstein, given his health, doesn't live to see the end of that sentence. That's a very sad set of circumstances, but it is a potential fact. It is not a dramatic statement. It is truth when you look at not only what you see in front of you, but looking at Mr. Weinstein in the course of not only the last two years, but even just since August. I think it is clear that there has been a drastic change in how he appears, a drastic change in how he can physically get around. And now, Judge, because he can't have the walker, he is confined to a wheelchair, which will just speed up how quickly his body will degenerate if he can't walk. Judge, we're asking this court to consider the totality of the circumstances. We are asking this court to look at not only the totality of the trial testimony, but the fact that the jury does not convict Mr. Weinstein of the most serious counts in this matter. The fact that the jury does take a number of days to make its determination. And also, I'm not going to get into too much of what I think about that myself, But there will be another court that reviews this case to determine the fact that the verdict was correct. And that's why we have the system we have here. 
and that's how our system works, and there will be another court reviewing this going forward. But Judge, based on the totality of the circumstances, I'm asking that you give Mr. Weinstein a minimum sentence. I believe that not only the facts dictates it, I think the law dictates it. It will absolutely be just. He has lost so much prior to whatever sentence your honor hands down, I'm asking that we don't compound that. Then it was time for us to finally hear from the one person who had stayed quiet through this whole trial, Harvey Weinstein himself. He was given the opportunity to address the court, and he took it. Let's hear from Harvey Weinstein. Would you like to make a statement prior to sentence? First of all, to all the women who testified, we may have different truths, but I have great remorse for all of you. I have great remorse for all the men and women going through this crisis right now in our country. You know, the movement started basically with me, and I think what happened, you know, I was the first example. And now there are thousands of men who are being accused and a regeneration of things that I think none of us understood. I think that I can't help looking at Jessica and hope that something of our old friendship in me could emerge, but I'm sure, like me, they have lawyers who say to them, be careful of what you say. I read, you know, those letters where people talked about, you know, missing you, loving you, that kind of thing. As you know, having a serious friendship, that is what I believed that I had with Mimi and Jessica. You know, I really, really was maybe hypnotic and under that impression that I had that feeling, that I had that relationship. That five years with Jessica and the years that I knew Mimi were always filled with, don't go on the plane, Harv, I want to have dinner with you first from Mimi or Harv, uh, whatever, let's get, you know, can you look at this idea I have for a television series or Harv, I'm in Cannes, can I go to the premiere? Or Jessica, can I get into the Soho Club, which is a very exclusive, tough place to get into, but she needed it for herself. I got her a job at the Peninsula Hotel, which she excelled at for a while. I'm not going to say these aren't great people. I had wonderful times with these people, you know. It is just I'm totally confused, and I think men are confused about all of these issues. You know, I'm just dealing with the thousands of men and women who are losing due process. I'm worried about this country in a sense, too. I'm worried there is a repeat of the blacklist there was in the 1950s when lots of men like myself, Dalton Trumbo, one of the great examples, did not work, went to jail because people thought they were communists. You know, there was a scare, and that is what happened, and I think that is what is happening now all over this country. Two years ago, we wrote a letter to 15 friends. I think uh, the ADA quoted part of it, but the part of it that was the most important part was, I'm a builder. I know how to build. I know how to generate, you know, things on a charitable nature, and I know how to pass my success forward. I think even Mimi and Jessica would say that I was generous, you know, in that part of the relationship. 
the thing that I wanted to do in that letter was I wanted to build a hospital, but not a hospital like the regular hospital, a hospital that deals with this rehabilitation and redemption. People losing their jobs over the fact they testified for me or people being afraid to testify that they will lose their jobs. That is not the right atmosphere for this United States of America. It is wrong, you know, and that is what is happening. Everybody is on some sort of blacklist. I had no great powers in this industry. Miramax, at the height of its fame, was a smaller company than by far any Walt Disney, any Sony, Paramount. I could not blackball anybody because if I said don't use that actress, the guys at Warner Brothers would say, I'm going to use it to spite that bastard, <laughs> whatever. That is what it was, but it became blown up. Like, power, power, power. I was not about power. I was about making great movies. I was a perfectionist, and I think I drove myself crazy. I'm not going to also run away from what the district attorney said about some of the things I did say. I had a fight with my brother. Yes, people said I said bad things to people. But there are so many people, thousands of people, who would say great things about me. Sixty executives in this industry were trained by me. They are at the top of their field. They were running studios in top positions in this country. When I was an assistant at Paramount, they said, if you're five minutes late, don't come in, or they would black me the whole day. There never was in our industry a book that said this is how it should be. We always passed it on from assistant to assistant. An assistant was almost like, uh, if you were my assistant, it was like going to the Marine Corps. I mean, could you survive two years with me and then become an executive? And those two years were tough, and I admit it. If I had to do it over again, I would not do it that way. If I had to do a lot of things over, I would care less about the movies and care more about my children, family, and other people, and friends, and other people in this life. The thing for me is, I've not seen my three older children since the newspaper, since the New Yorker article came out. Not the New York Times, but the New Yorker article. So I've not seen them. I just have no idea what they're doing, and I'm in no communication with them. That, for me, is hell on earth. I just think my empathy has grown over the last two and a half years. I, I can look at everybody there, you know, and just say, you know, I understand things. I empathize. I feel things. And I was not that person until this crisis started. I have to just say that. I mean, that part of this is such a tough process and it has come out where I have learned so many things. I never thought I could deal with things I dealt with in Arizona. I said, I'll build this hospital, blah, blah, blah. I said to two 15-year-olds, what would you name the hospital? They said, the Wonder Woman Hospital. I said, you have to think of like a Greek god. He said, Athena. Those two 15-year-olds, because they were all a part of this group, 
were hooked on opiates and whatever and, you know, prostituting themselves to make money for it. I met all sorts of people, and I have grown. For me, the idea of perfection in art and business is over. My mission is to help people. And I also want to make one clear statement. My wife Eve, my first wife, and my wife Georgina knew nothing about this. I went to extraordinary lengths to hide my extramarital affairs. That was a terrible thing that I did by having those extramarital affairs. And God knows if I could take it back, I would. I know everybody in this room feels the same way. It had nothing to do with anything. I was unfaithful to both. And I just cannot tell you how bad I feel about that. You know, I never see my children again, and they are everything to me in this world. You know, when I deal with subjects like this, I don't wish for vengeance. I wish for understanding. That is why I wanted to build a hospital. I wanted to build a hospital where if somebody is accused of something, they work, women, men, me too, they work with accredited groups that come in and help them and help them grow. You know, I wanted to testify, but they told me, all these things the district attorney just said would come in my way before I testified. I wanted to talk to everybody, but anyhow, they all came up as it is. Now, you should know some of the other side of that because I recognize the voices in those. One of those voices, one... Uh, I lost my train of thought. I just recognized some of the names who complained... But what was known about me was with the toughness came the kindness. The person who probably hates me the most in this world, their daughter has a situation where she needs the help of a great doctor. I got her that doctor. That doctor is there to date with her. Her father could not get that doctor. This is the person who hates me the most in this company. When his mother was sick, I helped him with the doctor, too. There was not any request that I refused on the part of the people who worked with me. As far as the million dollars is concerned, I wrote a check out from the company, but I reimbursed the company because that is the way we did it. That million dollars was mine, and I will say that over and over again. 9-11 happened, and I woke up two days later. I called John Sice. I said, we have to do something for New York, not only for the money, but for the attitude. We raised $100 million free of expenses. Ask the police who got that money. Ask the 25 firemen if they respect me. Ask the workers if they respect me. And most of all, ask the victims of 9-11 who received $35 million of that $100 million if they respect me. You know, when you want to investigate, take both sides into the equation. Then, when Sandy happened and people lost their jobs and people lost their houses again, we went to the board and we raised $77 million. Ask the guy in Coney Island. Ask the guy in Far Rockaway when he lost his business and we were able to walk and save his business. 
Ask him if he likes me. Ask the captain who was killed in action. We were able to take his children to the Super Bowl and to the Academy Awards because somebody had to do it. I did it with Steve Tisch. There are so many examples of that. Robin Hood raised $2.5 billion for the children and the people of New York City. We built schools, built advocacy groups. I'm not saying I was a great part of it, but I was one of the board there and 22 years, and I had a lot to say and a lot to do. Jones was the one who deserved the credit, but $2.5 billion to build schools. I showed it by my work. You can't achieve what we achieved at Amphar. You cannot achieve what we achieved at Amphar without doing the hard work, getting the people. And we raised $170 million, and I started with Amphar. People would not touch each other, like the virus today. People would not touch each other. They were scared of AIDS, and there were 300 people who raised $300,000 the first night. The year I left Amphar, we raised $30 million and $170 million overall. I worked too hard. As a result of working too hard, I felt too much pressure on myself. I really feel the remorse of this situation. I feel it deeply in my heart. I feel emotional. I feel like to go and talk to you guys, you know, just really, really caring and really trying and really trying to be a better person. Thank you, Your Honor, for the time. I don't think Weinstein did well here. I thought his speech was a bit of a rambling mess. When you compare it, actually, by the way, to Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, who had obviously, I think, spent a lot of time considering what they were going to say and, you know, very articulate and very fluent. We didn't see that in this case. He had some impressive moments, I thought, where he wished he could go back and do things differently, especially with his two wives and his children. But mostly I thought it didn't work. I don't know what you thought, Phil, but I also don't think he could have said anything that it would have changed yes. the sentencing. And by the way, you know what occurred to me? I was thinking today, like, if he literally had done the King's speech, by the way, or you know, one of those incredible speeches from one of his movies. I don't think it would have moved it would not have Judge moved. Burke in no. any way. One thing he was right about, and that was, I think that was a really good point he made, that he was the symbol of the Me Too movement and his fate, which I think is exactly what he was, that his fate was sealed once he became that person. Yes. I mean, he did resonate with me when he said that he was confused about his relationship with Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, because when you look at their communications with him, never once do they hint in any of their communications that there's any issue with their relationship. Yeah. They never tell him. And he assumed that when they were going on these trips with him, when he writing was... Writing all these emails, asking emails. for things. And, you know, whether that's true or not, unfortunately for the victims here, there are no emails anywhere. Let's say you raped me. Yeah, you or, or I me. was raped to any of their friends or to anyone like that. I remember, and, yeah. And Don, Don Rotona had made that point that, you know, if that had been the case, we would have heard a lot about yes. that one email. So Weinstein says he is confused about his relationship with them. And uh, that struck me as actually being backed up by the evidence. So then it was time for the only person that really mattered on this day today, Judge James Burke. He had the last words that were heard in this case. He was brief, but he chose to give Weinstein as close to the maximum as he possibly could. 
could, given that Weinstein was a first offender. Yeah, he couldn't throw the absolute maximum at him, but boy, he went close. Let's hear what he said to Weinstein. Thank you, Mr. Weinstein. Thank you very much, attorneys. That leaves not much more to say. I will say, although this is a first conviction, it is not a first offence. Taking into account only that which is legally appropriate, and while not in any way taking into account conduct for which the defendant was acquitted, or which is unproven, and or not properly before the court, there is evidence before me of other incidents of sexual assault involving a number of women, all of which are legitimate considerations for sentence. Yes, so those words, this is a first conviction, but it is not a first offence. Remember how previously the judge said he was ignoring the unproven allegations listed in the prosecution memo? Well, this does sound like a contradiction of that previous statement. He does seem to be contradicting himself. Yeah. Uh, Then the judge went through the formalities of letting Weinstein know that he had to register as a sex offender when he was released. And then we got to the sentencing. Let's hear that. And please note, in regard to your medical situation, that unlike the federal system, New York state judges have no power or input to place prisoners. That is a decision wholly within the authority of the New York State Department of Corrections. I will not make a requirement. The sentence of the court is as follows. Under penal law, section 130.50, subdivision 1, criminal sexual act in the first degree, a class B violent felony offense. You are sentenced to 20 years prison with five years post-release supervision to run consecutively to, under penal law, section 130.25, subdivision 3, rape in the third degree, a class E felony sex offense, three years prison with five years post-release supervision to merge as a matter of law. Thank you. Court stands adjourned. Officers take charge. So with that, Weinstein was taken away in handcuffs. So let's just break down the sentence for you. The judge imposed 20 years for the First Degree Criminal Sex Act for forcing oral sex on a production assistant, Miriam Haley, in 2006. He also imposed a three-year sentence for third-degree rape of Jessica Mann, and the sentences are to run consecutively. So that's 23 years in total. And in New York, offenders serve seven-eighths of their sentence. So my rough calculation is that Weinstein is looking at least 20 years before release. And he's 67 with numerous medical conditions. So this is really, in effect, a life sentence. I just said, actually, it's a death sentence. So, I mean, this has been quite the experience for us, just wrapping up here. I mean, this has been an extraordinary experience. Amazing, you know, actually to watch the criminal justice system in operation. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, if this was, I think this is my first criminal trial, I think, where I've sat through every day. And I was quite surprised, I have to say. I do think politics took over. I think there was mob justice rather than justice justice. But I hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast these last weeks you've been great by the way so yeah we noticed a lot more comments recently so we encourage you to go on and comment tell us what you think about the podcast leave a star rating if you can 
Obviously, we prefer five-star ratings to yes. one-star ratings, but be honest, tell us what you think. We think we improved and we stopped interrupting each other as we went on. Yes. I hope you think so too. That was an early criticism. We used to talk over each other and interrupt each other, but we are married, so I think this it goes meant- with the territory. So if you enjoyed this podcast series, please check out our weekly podcast called The Anne and Phelan Scoop. You can access the podcast on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and more. On our weekly podcast, we cover unreported stories, politics, culture and current events. You'll also meet our cats, Top Cat and Scaredy Cat, who were unable to join us in New York for the Weinstein trial. Um, we hope you'll continue to be an avid listener and thank you for making the Harvey Weinstein trial unfiltered a success. We hope you found this podcast worthwhile. Don't forget to leave a review, as Philem says. And also, if you want to find out about other podcasts that we plan in the future and would like to be kept up to date with all our activities, please sign up for email updates at theapscoop.com. That's theapscoop.com. Oh, yes. And if you would like to help us continue, uh, you can make a tax-deductible donation to the theunreportedstorysociety.com. That's our 501c3, the Unreported Story Society, and you can get that at the theunreportedstorysociety.com. We like doing this. We'd we like think it's important. Yes. We've created a new genre here, a new news entertainment genre, the Verbatim Podcast. We have fantastic actors I mean, the actors have been unbelievable and even the lawyers have complimented us on uh, on the actors. Uh, one lawyer, whose name I will not reveal, said, yours is the only podcast about the trial I'm listening to. And, uh, and we, of- had, we had members of the public as well. Some of the members of the public who did attend the trial, yeah. you know, we had them saying that we were doing a public service. A lot of people yes. felt that. And I do want to, just before we sign off here, I do want to say we're really grateful to the actors. I can't name them all here, but uh, they're just amazing. And I think everyone just really is so complimentary of what they've achieved. And mm. you've no idea how quickly these actors had to turn around, they had to come in in the evening and just, you know, produce this amazing, amazing quality. We are so grateful. And to the producers, Raquel and Magda, and to the director, Kif, and to Misha. Like, unbelievable. Great team that we had here, because this is quite the ordeal. It was a 24-hour operation. Yes, and And we had our our editor, by the way, our editors in Georgia and in Poland. Yes. Um, We are so grateful to all of them. That's Georgia, the state of Georgia, but the country of Poland. So thank you so much. Thank everyone. you so much. And again, just sign up and find out what we're doing at theapscoop.com. We're going we're to do more of this. We'll do more of this. Thank you. Thank you. Today's podcast is produced by Unreported Story Society and Magdalena Segeda and Raquel Lerman of Theatre Planners. Written and presented by Felon McAleer and Anne McElhaney. Directed by Kiff Scholl. Donna Rotuno is played by Caitlin Carlton. Judge James Burke is played by Thomas Fisella. Joan Aluzi Orban is played by Michelle Gardner. Harvey Weinstein is played by Dan Maley. Arthur Idala is played by Bruce Nozick. Miriam Halei is played by Alina Phelan. And Jessica Mann is played by Natalie Pollison. Edited by Chris Gorski. Engineered by Mark De La Fuente.